It's always the coolest thing in church when you have a lot of kids is to watch them go and learn about who Jesus is. So wonderful to see that. Our church is full of young people, the future leaders of our church. We are so grateful for everyone who teaches. We're so grateful for all the kids that are here, even those that stay and have to endure listening to me. This is great. I just want you to know that we are in a really exciting part of the book of John. We have just come through John chapter 17, uh, what's known as uh, Jesus' great priestly prayer. We've spent a great deal of time in that. And now we're in chapter 18, which is Jesus' arrest. As he heads now, he beelines to the cross. And so I tell you that Normally in a sermon, they ask you to start with an introduction, a cute, funny story, or something that's poignant that has to do with the passage. But I'm going to tell you, there's too much that we have to go through this morning. I am not going to start with an introduction, because the story in and of itself is its own. It does not need me to add anything to it. So let's begin. As we read this passage, there are two questions that I want us to look at. I want us to think through this. There are two questions I want us to see. The first question is, is who is in charge of the situation? Who is in control? And the second one is, is why does knowing who is in charge matter to me? Why does that matter to my eternal salvation? Let's begin by reading chapter 18, verses 1 through 11 together. Starting in verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, where he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus had met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Let's bow in prayer once again before we dig into this very interesting and exciting word that we have ahead of us. Heavenly Father, I just thank you, Lord, for today. I thank you for this passage. I thank you for the power of your word, the power that this passage gives us, Lord. I pray, God, that this morning that the words, these are your words. This is what you did. This is not me doing anything, Lord. This is me just telling what you did and preaching it, Lord, with conviction and with power given by the Holy Spirit. I pray, God, that your hearts, our hearts, would be open to hear what it is that you have to say. 
that we would learn about you more. We would look into ourselves, Lord, and find out why this passage is important to all of us. I pray, God, that you, again, would be glorified. You would be blessed in the teaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. When we start right here in verse 1 of chapter 18, <coughs> we see that, that Jesus had just spoken those words, that prayer that we spent three weeks working on, and now we see him taking his disciples. He takes his disciples across the Kidron Valley, across the brook Kidron, up into the garden. Now, John does not call it the Garden of Gethsemane. God, or he calls it uh, the, just a garden. In a couple of the other gospel accounts, it is called the Garden of Gethsemane, and another one it is called the Mount of Olives. And this is where Jesus had been praying. He prayed this agonizing prayer that John has not recorded in his section here in John 18. But nonetheless, we know that Jesus had prayed that prayer. Then in Luke 2, 22, 44, that Jesus was praying that God would take this cup away from him. His Father would take this cup away from him. And he was so intent in this prayer that his sweat became like droplets of blood. Now, we sometimes think that, you know, that his blood, it, he actually sweat blood. That's not actually what it says. It says that he actually had sweat that was like blood, like if you have a cut and you're bending over and, and drips of blood were falling down. It was like that. Not necessarily that it was blood itself. But here he is. Jesus, being in control of the situation, leading his people, his disciples, across the, the brook Kidron into this garden where he prays this prayer. And then we see in verse 2 that Judas is said to have betrayed Jesus. It is clear that Judas was not in control of the situation. He was just taking the arresting party with him to a place he figured that Jesus would be easily found because this is a place where Judas was familiar with because he had been with Jesus for three years. And he had been to this place many times, and he knew this was a favorite. But it was Jesus who was in charge, knowing, as we look in verse 4, all that was going to happen to him, knowing that this was going to happen to him, he led them to this place where he knew he would be found. And one of the things that I want to bring out early on, I'm going to immediately really get into this because this is really important for us to understand before we go forward. But it talks about, John talks about Judas as the betrayer twice in this passage. <clears throat> and as we know and we study the Bible, when things are mentioned more than one time, that we really need to take a look at them and see what they mean. And I want to do a review because we've looked at Judas as the betrayer before. But I want to look at it again. And how does this matter to us? In Matthew 26, 24, Jesus said these words about Judas. He said, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Now, when we read a verse like that, we go, wow, that is a strong and chilling statement that Jesus is making regarding a man who had been with him for three years. 
a man who had slept near him, a man who ate with him, a man who saw all the miracles, who witnessed the demons being cast out, who heard the meaning of the parables. And even though he experienced all of these things firsthand, <coughs> Judas never knew Jesus. Imagine that, spending three years with Jesus and not actually knowing him. And he never recognized him as God. He never repented of his sin, and he never lived for Christ. Instead, Judas betrayed Jesus. He sold his salvation for 30 pieces of silver. And even after Judas finally realized what he had done, thinking his actions alone had caused Jesus to be condemned, as recorded in Matthew 27, he still didn't turn to Jesus for forgiveness. No. <clears throat> what did he do? He ran away and he killed himself. And he lives in eternal damnation because of his betrayal and rejection of the one who was before him. He never turned to Jesus. Never. Jesus said it would have been better for him to have never been born than to live eternity in hell because of his disobedience and of his rejection of Jesus. So I ask us this question. If Jesus looked at us today, would he say, what would he say about us? What would he say about you? Would he say if, if it had been better for you to have not been born because you continued to reject him for who he really is? Let me ask you, if you're here today, and you've spent all your life in church, if you've spent numerous hours doing church things, serving, giving, singing, and greeting, hanging around Jesus, but do not know him as your Lord and Savior, then these very disturbing words are true for you. It would have been better if you had not been born that what will come to you after you leave this earth. You will face eternal damnation and separation from God with Judas. The these troubles that we find today are just a mere pittance to what will happen to those who reject Christ in eternity. And I know that sounds pretty harsh, and you're wondering, gosh, if you start there, where are we going now? I mean it to be a little harsh. Because if that's what takes us to wake up from the dead, to understand who Christ is, that we truly need to take our faith seriously, then it's worth it. I would rather have you mad at me and never want to talk to me again and be in heaven than to be happy with me and spend eternity in hell. And I believe every pastor and preacher who stands in a pulpit would say the same thing. So then what about those of us who do know Jesus and recognize him as our Lord and Savior? Can we betray Jesus the same way Judas did? And the answer is yes and no. So let me explain. We know that we are all sinners. We all betray Jesus with our sin. We are fallen from Adam when sin entered into the world in the Garden of Eden. James 4.17 describes sin like this. For whoever knows to do the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. 
If we know what the right thing is to do, and if we choose not to do the right thing, it is sin. All of us are guilty of falling it from one time or another. And I mean the right thing by God's standard, as written in his holy word. We must trust God even when it gets tough. When we fail to see Jesus as sufficient for us, and we turn to other things for our salvation, when we get ahead of him, we are betraying him. But there's good news. And I know you're wondering, when was that going to happen? But the good news is for those of us who are in Christ, who recognize him as our Lord and Savior, and have committed our lives to him, when we betray Jesus, when we sin against him, there is forgiveness and restoration. We will not be sent to eternal damnation in hell. We will turn to him and repent and seek restoration and forgiveness. And Jesus gladly gives us his grace upon grace. So as we, let's jump ahead to a, a little passage about Peter's denial that we'll talk about in a couple weeks. Use that as a contrast against Judas. When Jesus told the disciples back in chapter 13 that he was going to a place that they could not follow, Peter made the bold proclamation that he would lay down his life for Jesus, that he would follow him wherever he went. And Jesus told Peter that he would, in fact, deny him not once but three times before the rooster crowed, meaning that Peter would deny or betray Jesus three times that night before the sun rose. And, of course, he did. Now, here's the thing. When Peter heard the rooster crow and he realized what he was done, what he had done, he was broken. John doesn't record Peter's actions, we'll see here in a little bit, in a couple of weeks, but Luke does. And in Luke 22:60, this is the rec recording of, Jesus, or of Peter's reaction. It says, And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And then he went out and he wept bitterly. And here is the difference between someone who hasn't committed their lives to Christ, like Judas, who ran away from Jesus and killed himself. He never turned to Christ for restoration and forgiveness. Peter was broken and he wept bitterly after his betrayal, and he returned to Jesus and was rewarded, as we'll see later on in May when we finish the book of John, starting in verse 20, that Jesus restores Peter, and Peter, as we know, looking into the book of Acts and through the rest of the New Testament, he becomes a pillar in the early church. He becomes someone that we want to be like. He is restored because he turned his face to Christ. So I ask you, which person would you rather be? Peter or Judas? Understand that Jesus died for all of us. He died for you, the betrayers, the sinners, so that we could be saved. And as we return back to our passage and we look ahead to verse 4 where we see that John records that, 
that Jesus knew everything that was going to happen to him, including the fact that Judas was going to hand him over. But he led his disciples, as we said earlier, to the place where he knew he would be found because he is in control. The enemy is not in control. Jesus is in the lead. John is very carefully and subtly pointing out Jesus' deity here in this section, pointing out his attribute of omniscience, which simply means that Jesus, being truly God, has unlimited, infinite knowledge. And this is an attribute that is unique to God only. People cannot share in this attribute of God. This character is one that only God himself can have. So in verse 3, Judas indeed finds Jesus where Jesus had led his disciples and he brings a band of soldiers and chief priests and Pharisees who are carrying torches and lanterns and they also carried weapons with them. Scholars say that this Roman contingent could be as many as 40 to up to 1,000 soldiers. Most say it was somewhere between 50 and 100. But whatever the number is, it doesn't really make any difference because Jesus was going to hand himself over to be arrested. It could have been just one. And honestly, probably none. Because he was leading the way because it was the Father's will. And he loved his Father, and he was obedient, even to death on a cross. As we begin to look at this next section of verses, in verses 4 through 9, the scene starts to take place and take shape, and we see Jesus step in to present himself to his captors, to willingly give himself up instead of being taken by force. He was leading the way, helping his enemies by volunteering himself for what was to come later that night. As we have seen, none of this comes to Jesus as a surprise. Jesus has been prepared for this all the days of his life, and really from all eternity. As we look at verses 4 through 9, let's read them together. Then Jesus knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you have gave me. I have lost not one. So we see in verse 4, we read again that Jesus was fully aware of everything that was going on. And his willingness to follow his father's will for his life. That he knew this time was coming and he was willing to endure his fate on the cross. Jesus, seeing the throng of soldiers and chief priests coming at him, he doesn't wait for them to seize him. He doesn't run away and hide. He willingly steps forward because he is in charge. And he says, whom do you seek? And Jesus voluntarily wades into danger 
for the sake of following his father's will. And even now we see Jesus in control in verses 5 and 6. Whom do you seek? And they answer, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answers, I am he. And the soldiers in the presence of the betrayer heard Jesus say these familiar words, I am he, professing the very name of God. And what did they do? They fell down. They fell down. Listen to these words from Deuteronomy 32, 39, when Moses is singing this song after he had recited the law to the nation of Israel. As he's singing about God. See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Verse 43 says, Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, O gods. For he avenges the blood of his children. And he takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him. And cleanses his people's land. Powerful stuff. Jesus said, I am he. Meaning that he is the I am. And they fell down. That song, uh, I can only imagine, it says, what will I do when I come into the presence of Jesus? Will I dance for him? What will I do? Will I fall down? I guarantee you, we'll all fall down. And if you're in him, by the love and his grace, he will lift you up and say, you are my child. Paul says this in Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the, of the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see the power of that verse? Not one knee will not bow before Christ. Not one atheist. Not one enemy of Jesus. Every single knee will bow before our Lord God Almighty, our Savior, our King. What do you think was going through Judas' mind about now as he was watching this play out before him? And then after... They fall down in verse 7. He asks the soldiers again, who is it that you're looking for? And they say again, Jesus of Nazareth. And then Jesus in verse 8 says, I told you that I am he. That he reiterates that he is the one that they are seeking. That he voluntarily puts himself out there in front of his enemies, the ones who want to capture him. The very ones that he was going to go to the cross for in just a little while. Then Jesus does something remarkable, something that you and I would never do because only he is called to do this. So if you seek me, he says, let these men go. Jesus steps in front of the disciples and gives himself up into the hands of his captors, telling them to let these people go. 
Now, who is in charge? Of course, Christ is. And our first thought would be how sweet of Jesus to think of his innocent disciples caught up in this cosmic battle between good and evil, between God and Satan. A battle that we as people never witness. God graciously hides the spiritual battle from us. We fight against things unseen. But here it is, right in front of them. But think through this for just a second. I want you to really, really think through this. Are Jesus' disciples really innocent? Are they really any different than the ones who are trying to capture him? We looked at this a little bit earlier, that we are all sinners. We were all at one time betrayers of Jesus. And we see that after Jesus is arrested, they all leave him. Even Peter, they all abandon Jesus. So I ask you again, are they innocent? Romans 5, 6 through 10 tells us this. For while we are still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And then in verse 10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Jesus stepped in front of his disciples to save them, a signal of what was to come. Jesus was about to give his life for the ungodly, to die for his enemies, for his disciples, for us. Jesus was going to a place that in John 13, 33, he told his disciples that they couldn't go with him. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus was going to the cross. Only he could go there. No one else could go to the cross but him. Because this is the will of the Father for his life. That he was going to take the sins of the world upon his only capable shoulders for the glory of his Father. Jesus was soon to be lifted up on a cross, exalted above all the people, with a crown of thorns on his head and a sign above his head that said, the King of the Jews. Little did they know that he truly was a king. And even though Satan thought that he had him, that he was going to die, and the plan would be thwarted, in heaven there was rejoicing because of his victory. There was victory. There was victory in the cross. John reminds us that Jesus had just spoken these words in John 17, 12 that we looked at just a couple weeks ago. He said, when I was with them, 
I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus steps in front and he de demands his disciples be released so that none of them would be lost. No one that the God the Father had given him would perish. And this is the love of Jesus. Love that is shown in his full obedience to the Father. The kind of love that he says we need to have when he said that, and he said in his long talking, starting in verse uh, chapter 14, he told us that if you love me, he told his disciples, you will keep my commandments. Jesus is demonstrating the links of this obedience that was going to be required of his disciples. That they would, they would, out of love for God and for his people, deny themselves for the sake of others. This is not just a call on the disciples, but it is a call on our lives as well. To deny ourselves and sometimes even our creature comforts, our TV time, which is precious, I know, and to relax or to read or go to the mountains on vacation or wherever it is that we find pleasure Sometimes we are called to deny ourselves, even our money, for the sake of bringing others into the kingdom. We have to have the long view of eternity. Because this time on earth is short, but eternity is forever. There will be plenty of time for us to relax and enjoy, although we will work in heaven. So if you think it's a total vacation, you're wrong, but we'll love it. By not losing one that the Father gave him, Jesus is fulfilling the Father's will for his life. Now, the good news is none of us will ever have to go to the cross since Jesus already did that for us. But those of us who call ourselves Christians, we are called to share Christ with others, to have a heart for the lost, we are given a command to go and make disciples. Go and be Jesus' witnesses. Go and share our lives and the good things that God has given us for his glory. So what if we resolve to not waste a moment of our precious time on earth for the glory of God's kingdom? Christ is stepping in so that we will have that opportunity. So as we start to transition now into the last two verses of this morning's passage. We get the crux of the idea, the crux of why Jesus and his disciples are here, why they're in this garden of olive trees, why there is a band of soldiers and leaders from the chief priests and Pharisees, why they're here to arrest Jesus, why Judas, filled with Satan, is leading them right into the plan that the Father had put in place since the book of Genesis, chapter 3. Jesus is willingly giving himself up. He is the one who is in charge, not the soldiers, not the chief priests, and certainly not Judas. Let's read verses 10 and 11 together as we see that Jesus must drink of this cup that the Father has given him. Starting verse 10, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And right away, 
right away we read where Peter, who in his gracious yet overbearing heart, is trying to save Jesus from the injustice that he sees happening to him. Peter has been with Jesus for three years. He gave everything up to follow him. And here he is, seeing Jesus being falsely arrested for a crime that he didn't do. In fact, at this point, no one even really knows what the crime is. No charges have been laid out. No crime has been alleged at this point. So Peter, with his best intentions, decides to act out, and he cuts off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. Peter is getting ahead of Jesus. He is getting ahead of the Lord. Even though Jesus had explained to his disciples many times what his destiny was, that he had to die, he had to be raised again, that this was the Father's plan for him to redeem his people to himself and to fulfill his purpose on earth, Peter doesn't wait. So how many times in our lives do we get ahead of the Lord and think that we are in the right, only to understand later on that if we had waited for the Lord to act, we would have been better off. How many mistakes have we made in ministry? I've made in ministry by being impatient. How many marriages would have been saved if we would have trusted the Lord and His Word before divorce proceedings were started? How many times would we have gotten a better job if we had waited one minute longer than taking the first one offered? How many times would our current job situation have improved if we had waited and prayed to the Lord and that manager quit before we did? But here is Peter jumping to the front of the line, cutting in front of Jesus, and he cuts off the ear of Malchus with possibly the worst aim ever. Do you really think he was trying to cut off his ear? I think not. I think the only person who could have aimed worse was me. I can't hit anything with a knife or with a gun. I am completely useless in that way. Don't laugh. I'm going to get my man card back eventually. But here's Peter. He, he just cuts off his ear, and maybe even he missed so much he just cut the lobe of his ear off. But let's think about this for a second. And how often did Jesus say, how often did you read in the Bible, if you read the Bible, did he say that the kingdom of God will be won by force? That he came to kill and maim? That he came to seek and destroy? How many times have you read that in the Bible? Now, if you read the Bible, the answer would be none. He never said that. He never said that. John 10.10, 10, Jesus says this, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Honestly, I can relate to Peter. I'm not sure that I wouldn't have done the same thing. It was wrong, but at the moment it seemed so right. How many times have we done that? We all want to protect the ones we love. In this case, it was the wrong move. And we know that because of what Jesus says in verse 11. Jesus again showing that he is the one who's in control of the whole situation, all of what's happening here. He exhorts Peter to put his sword away. In Luke twenty-two fifty-one, Luke records this. He says, Jesus exclaims, enough of this! 
Jesus has had enough. He knows why he is there. He knows he's, what is about to happen as we read in verse 4. None of this is a surprise. Listen to Jesus' prayer right before this happened is recorded in Luke. Luke 22, 39 through 44. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus knew what was coming. And it was so agonizing that he prayed to the Father to remove it from him, but he knew he couldn't because he was submitting to his Father's will. He had to drink of the cup. And what is the cup? The cup is God's wrath, the wrath of his Father. And what is the wrath of God's Father, of his Father? Let's look at some synonyms of what wrath is. It's indignance, it's anger, it's his ire, it's his fury, it's his rage against sin. These are not attributes of God against his people because we know God is love, but he hates sin. He is just, he is righteous. And when sin came into the garden through Adam and Eve back in Genesis, there was a fall and we all became tainted with sin. And because God is just, there has to be a payment. His wrath has to be paid. There has to be justice. Payment for sin must happen. And all of us here today deserve his wrath, his anger, his ire, his rage against us for our behavior and our disobedience, our idolatrous nature. But he doesn't give it to us. He is bestowing that onto his son. And Jesus knows it is coming. The hour has come. All of the pages of scripture, all of the words of the prophets, the writings, the history of Israel, every page in the, New, in the Old Testament at that time that spoke of him is coming true. Because it must be so. It cannot be any other way. Jesus says so again in verse 11. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? The cup of his Father's wrath. How many of us would pray that God would pass that cup from us? But Jesus gave that, that, that question, which is probably the greatest, most poignant rhetorical question of all eternity. There is no answer to what Jesus said of Peter. Yes, he must drink of this cup. He must drink this cup of his father's wrath. Because God is just. One of the most beautiful verses in the Bible that we should all memorize is 2 Corinthians 5.21. A lot of us have it memorized. If you don't, um, we should. 
For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. That is beautiful. The wrath of God was not bestowed upon us, but upon his son. Jesus is willingly giving himself to his captors to drink of the cup of his father's wrath just a few short hours away. So for those of us here this morning, maybe someone is here this morning who does not know Christ as their Lord and Savior. Let me read, I know it's been a hard word, but let me read you some comforting verses in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 29 as Jesus invites you to come to him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This world is hard. Life can be difficult. Things are difficult. We get ill. We get terrible diseases. We go through financial problems. We have relational issues. We face addiction. We face loneliness. We face old age. We face, and I believe me, all the things that come with old age. Life is hard. And if you're trying to do this all on your own, if you are trying to rely on your own strength, why are you doing that? Jesus is saying, come to me. Come to me. All of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let Jesus drink the cup of his Father's wrath that wasn't designed for you to drink. But let me assure you of one thing, that if you reject him and you do not put your faith and trust in him, that you will face his wrath in the time to come. You must make a decision for Jesus in this world. Once you die, it is too late. There is no second chance after that. So here is Jesus, willingly in this passage as you see, drinking of the cup that the Father gave him, saying to you, come, all of you who are heavy laden, who labor, and I will give you rest. Come to him. And for those of us who are here this morning, who maybe we have feel like that we know Jesus, but we haven't lived for him for so long that our lives are, we just, we feel like we have lost him, that he is gone, that our prayers are not being answered. Where is he in this time of trouble in my life? Still a promise for you. Come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. This is what this passage is all about. Christ making that promise to us. And this promise can only be made in this world. Once we leave and pass away, it is too late. So I beg of you, I ask of you, 
If you do not know him, today is the day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, God, for the power of your word, the power of this passage, Lord, when you willingly gave yourself into the hands of your captors, being in charge all the way, knowing what your Father's will, knowing that in the coming hours that you would face the wrath of God upon yourself, that all sins, past, present, and future, would be laid on you, Lord. We know that you've already been to the cross. You've already been resurrected, Lord. We know that you've already ascended to the right hand of the Father, and we await your glorious return. Father, I pray that if there is anyone here this morning who does not know you as Lord and Savior, I pray that today would be the day that they would give their life to you, that they would see this as an opportunity for them, Lord, to get rest. Get rest because you've done all the work. And for those of us, Lord, who maybe have been trying to fight this battle on our own after we have given our lives to you, Lord, I pray that we would understand that we cannot. We need to succumb to you, Lord. We need to come back to you. We need to be restored again, Lord. And we ask that you would restore us, Lord, just like you did Peter. We praise you and thank you, Lord, for this day. In Jesus' name, amen.